what is it about trapping and hunting that that can take over for a young man like that? I think it's in you. I, I think some love to fly and they can't get away from it. Some it's automobiles, mechanics, and hot rods, and some it's art and music. And for me, it was it was that hunting, trapping. To me, it was the solitude. Um, I'd sneak out of my bedroom window when I was 14, 15, on a January night with snow, you know, half a foot of snow on the ground and a full moon, and sneak down and hunt coyotes through the meadows. I'd sneak down through the ditches and hunt. You could see really well, you know, especially if the snow had a better crust on it, it would, it would reflect. That solitude of when it's zero out or five below out and you're moving and you're warm and you're just, you're just tiptoeing along and it's just you, that was everything to me. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Is it Jonesboro or Jonestown? Jonesboro. Jonesboro. Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, Billy Jones, when he came into this country with his boys, and I'm going to say, you know, in, in the early 1880s, they poked around and, and uh, they come up the river and homesteaded what is known as Jonesboro in 1888. And um, it's just a wide spot in that canyon, uh, which they built a ranch there. And then tied into built another ranch in Juntura and built another ranch all the way up into Druzy. And in its heyday, in the 30s, 20s, and 30s, it ran 4,000 head of cows. It was a big, it was a going concern, you know. And 4,000 head of cows in this country doesn't happen in a pasture. It no. T- it takes some real estate. A lot of real estate. And, you know, and obviously that was before Taylor Grayson. Um, but that, that ranch was basically contiguous from, from Jonesboro, probably 30, 40 miles up the canyon. Wow. You know? um, they had a lot of hay. They had a lot of cattle out. And I don't remember what year, but there was a winter where they had three years of hay stacked up. And they ate it all in that one winter. They just went from hay stack from field to field to field, starting in Druzy, which is a lot colder. They start there and they would bring them down as the winter got colder. But 
they got so hard they just come down through the meadows and those big long haystacks you know from long hay people understand what that was um they just fed them up and when they got to jonesboro it was still the first of march and they ran out of hay but it was quite a ranch and so i'm going to say in the 40s my granddad was born in 1910 his dad which was my great granddad they were in hepner at the time my great granddad eugene was on his way in 1910 for the very first official pendleton roundup his uncle newt was the bucking judge so gene figured he had a pretty good chance of winning the the rodeo there on uh, on on the bronx he got turned around he was given a telegram at pilot rocks and your child is being born so he had to turn around and go back and he missed the very first roundup with his uncle as the judge um so that was the start of my granddad and then so he showed up at the ranch um uh, when he was 18 had an old model a and in 1910 we back up in 1910 1912 is when the railroad come through Union Pacific to Burns to the mill so as a spur line that was the that was the spur line and at Jonesboro they wanted a siding and Billy Jones says I'll give you a siding if you build me a private stockyard because before then you either had to take I think you had to take them to Winnemucca was the closest stockyard to put the cattle on and you run a lot of pounds off a of cow between eastern Oregon and, and northern Nevada that's a long way yeah. yeah up desert you know you're not going to put any any weight on on the way down there yeah. you know and so he was given his private stockyard which if i'm not mistaken it was the only private stockyard tied to a up line in the whole country and up said if you ever let anybody else ship out of there then it becomes a public yard Sure. And so they did not. There and that caused a lot of hard feelings. There was folks in John Day, Prairie City, all around the country that wanted to sh- instead of having to drive to Winnemucca or to maybe somewhere in the Pendleton country, I don't remember where the next yard was, but they wanted to use Jonesboro. And Billy Jones says, "You cannot." So most of the little ranches back in Wallowa County um had a handful of dairy cows or or more than that maybe and the only product from that milk that they could really export was cream mhm because it was a little bit more shelf stable um but they had a lot of whey you know basically all the rest of the milk was left over so what people had to consume that that leftover milk product was hogs mhm um and then every fall they'd gather up hogs and they'd drive them down through the Wallowa, cross the Minam, up onto the flat into Elgin because there was a railhead at Elgin that they could put the hogs on the trains. And they did it um it, and it actually wasn't in the fall that they did it. I think it was in July ish. But they picked that month because that's when all the Mormon crickets were out and the and, hogs could eat them. Yep, and they'd graze those hogs <laughs> on crickets and that's why that ground between Minam and Elgin is called Cricket Flat. Serious in order to keep weight on those pigs that graze them on crickets on the way there. Can you imagine taking all the hogs from a county and and trying to cross rivers with them and everything and horseback? Horses hate pigs. I was, 
Everything hates pigs. <laughs> I, you know, you see that commercial of them trying to hurt those cats? Yeah. You know, and it'd be just like that or, or, or five times worse. It's just like, <laughs> and who would, who's ever going to admit that, yeah, we were on the pig drive, you know, in, in 87 or something. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, that was drawing the short straw for sure. It's not like, you know, here's your reward. You get to go drive hogs to Elgin. And then you get there and it's like, okay, now you're in Elgin. Congratulations. No. Bad deal. Okay. So that's a that's pretty crazy because the Union Pacific um, had such power and sway with Congress that they just used eminent domain to take whatever they wanted for the most part. Yeah. So they probably could have went to your granddad or your great granddad and, and said, hey, Sorry about your luck, but we're coming through here no matter what. And we're, we're taking enough to put a site in. And not only that, when they it had been interesting to, to set at that table and listen to that because when they come through there, the way Jonesboro is set up today, the river comes through in a fairly straight line. When they brought the railroad through, that, that river snaked through that little valley. Sure. And Billy Jones says, I want you to straighten the, that river out. He says, you're going to have to put your railroad right through here, and so you're going to have to divert the river. So, And what years are we talking about here? 1910. So straightening a river in 1910 doesn't mean you're going out there with a nice excavator no and big paddle some, wheel some rock trucks. Nothing like that. No, yeah. No. no. You're no, doing it's all it with Fresnos sh- and, and, and teams and all of that. Yeah. Um, and Most people listening don't know what a Fresno is. They think that's a place in California. Right, right. So um, what's a Fresno? A Fresno is a it's just basically a earth scraper um that horses pull that horses pull and probably minimum of 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 four horse team probably six maybe eight because if you look at any railroad that was built they moved a lot of dirt to keep that thing either at the incline or decline or, or level that they needed to a lot of dirt and so when they come through that jonesboro not only were they going to fill in all those areas where to keep that, uh, because a lot of that bank is 15, 20 feet high. Wow. To keep it above the level when they come out of that canyon into that valley and across through there, they had a big cut going through a, a finger and they used all that dirt for the fill. But um, but then you got to change the, the river, which is no small feat. Yeah. But people are good about building stuff out of rock around here. I drove out yeah. to the to the reservoir tonight, and some of those homesteads along there have some some of the most beautiful rock walls that I've seen outside of like pictures in Ireland. Um, and of course, you know we're in this house right now uh, that I want you to tell me about a little later. But tell me more about what what the Union Pacific Spur Line actually meant to Jonesboro. It changed the rivers. Billy Jones was, was able to get them to change the river, which gave you good meadows. And it gave him his own stockyard. And there was a stockyard in Juntura that, that was a public yard. Um, and and uh, you could bring up anything on the rail for the ranch. And that ranch was all, followed that rail all the way to Juntura. And then at Juntura, it followed, goes up the South Fork through Crane, through two burns and, uh, you know, to the mill. But um, they, uh, you know, the, the rail back then was a lifeline. And all of the ranch was over across the river at 
at the old homestead and you talk about rock work and all of that if you if you know where to look when you go up that canyon on you know westbound on highway 20 you can look at that buckboard trail that freight line trail that is built into the side of those canyons and the riprap rock work is still completely in place today and some of it's five feet high in a cut some of it's 20 to 30 feet high in a cut and all those rocks are still in place and so that's all they had you know they had either good timber good good lumber or an awful lot of rock yeah. that country is extremely rocky yeah it's mostly rock yeah, it's it mostly like. rock i know we've had when i was in high school we'd have friends come out and they're going you know are you kidding me you're trying to raise a cow out here it's you know how do you do that well they don't last as long. <laughs> I got a buddy from, uh, oh, <laughs> Paisley. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hay uh, reed canary grass. They've got great big mm-hmm. long meadows and they hay, hay reed canary grass. I can't hardly get my cattle to eat it. <laughs> and I I asked him, I was like, they actually eat that stuff? And he said, it's the only option they got. <laughs> you know? I used to love to get into a big canary reed grass pass because it made a lot of bales. And oh, when you're bailing it with a big round baler, those those windrows, I mean, it'll grab a hold of that windrow and you'll see it you'll see it from thirty yards out there just disappearing under your tractor and yeah. and uh, you gotta shut her down fast because it'll fill a chamber up really fast. Oh man. And you know, it's like those old guys says, Yeah, it'll make a turd, you know. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's fiber, right? And that's what yeah, that's what these animals need is yeah. fiber and protein. Yeah. And that's really and what it comes it, down to. You know, if you cut it in July, you know, it's not too bad, yeah. you know, before it gets too woody, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. We've got a lot of canary reed grass. We kicked our cattle out in it this morning and uh, it's the second time they've been in there this year. And we had one of them kind of look at us like, are you serious? <laughs> this is the pasture? Like, yeah, this is the pasture. <laughs> Eat it down. We had a feedlot, uh, the steer lot. We uh, we kept all of our wieners and run them through the through the lot till spring, and then ran them on grass cattle. And uh, the steer lot, um, you bring them in the fall, and uh, not so much in the bunk area, but where they went out and and bedded down and stuff was you know ten foot high canary reed grass yeah. in the fall. And you'd turn them out there, and they'd just disappear. And then it was great bedding, you know, they'd eat on it a little bit, but it's, you know, getting pretty dried up and wooded there, but phenomenal bedding and, and windbreak for those calves until they finally get it beat down. So what river are we talking about? Malheur, the Malheur River. Yep. Okay. The main, when you get to Juntura, it splits in the North Fork, goes up into that Beulah country. South Fork splits obviously to the south and runs out into basically towards Crane, mm. that Crane country, Harney County country. So, okay. yeah. So your granddad continued raising cattle. What about your dad? Um, my dad really didn't want anything to do with it. He hated it. Um, he hated being a cowboy. It was a pretty tough life. I mean, when, uh, when you're 10 years old and you're told at Christmas vacation, you're going out with a hired man on the buckboard to horse camp, which is 12 miles away uh, during Christmas break, and you're going to build a fence you know, with a load of cedar posts. My dad liked a mechanic. My dad liked to tinker. He did not want to be a cowboy. Um, and so he liked to farm. He was the first person in that canyon to raise corn, and he raised some phenomenal corn for silage. 
uh, for the feedlot. Um, it's a great mechanic, but did not want to be a cattleman. So my brother and I, my brother was 13 months older than me when we got up to an age where you could sit in a saddle. My granddad said, those are going to be the cowboys. Those are going to be the boys that take this over. So at a very young age, we were groomed to, to take up those positions. Dad handled the, the mechanic tractor farm, haying end of it, feeding end of it type of a deal. And we, uh, you know, at a, at a young age, my brother and I, Dan stepped in and, and, uh, grandpa taught us how to, how to ride, how to rope, how to shoe. You know, we were putting, I was putting shoes on my horses at when I was 12. And they were good shoes because if you if you didn't learn how to put a good shoe on, you didn't make it to the top, you know, and then you're, then you're afoot. Yeah. So he taught us at a very young age of uh, how to put a good shoe on and how to make it last. Now, when you're talking about cowboying as soon as you could sit in a saddle, that doesn't mean 10 years old. No, I was shooting my horses at 12. Right. You know, so at 12, I was packing a 50-foot rope. You know, yeah. I could throw, We, you weren't allowed to throw a little loop. You threw big loops. You of know. course, yeah. You guys yeah, you, down here. We, we yeah. know about, yeah, yeah, we know about that, huh? I know. My dad's the same way. Yeah. I'll egg him on to be like, is that the biggest loop you can possibly <laughs> swing right now? There'll be seven other people trying to rope in the little pen and they're all ducking and dodging <laughs> around. And you don't need all that, but it does look cool. Uh, there was guys, good cowboys from, uh, from Harney County. You know, they come over in Brandon and stuff and, uh. That said, for heaven's sakes, my granddad name was, was Denny. <laughs> for heaven's sakes, Denny, those kids can't even hold on to that with those little hands. Why? Why don't you just give them a, a you know, a, a five sixteenths, you know, scant, you know, thirty footer? For heaven's sakes, my God, you know, those kids gonna know how to handle a rope. <laughs> it's like, and we did, but I, you know, I can remember hands so cramped up that you, you know, you have this pot and then you're spilling coils and you're trying to keep it all together and. And so the bigger loop you threw, the less coils you had to hold on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, sure. I got fed just a complete line of, of crap for so long and and, on, and so many things too. Like, you know, as a kid, I was always told that you could never grab onto the, to a saddle horn, mm -hmm. right? No matter how the horse was bucking or splitting into or, or, or shaking like it was trying to knock its own hair off, you weren't supposed to grab a hold of the saddle horn. I was like, okay, well, good enough. I won't. And as an adult looking back, I'm like, why not? It's there. It's super convenient. It's not doing anything else. You will not carry any water. <laughs> why not? We just don't do that. Yeah. Don't put your hands in your pockets. Right. Well, it's cold outside. <laughs> <laughs> Quit looking at ground for arrowheads. If you're going to be a cowboy, you got to look up and, and straight and quit riding single file. Get your ass up here beside me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Makes all the sense in the world. You bet. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> My granddad, um, Harney County has, and, you know, obviously still does, but had some great, has some great cowboys. And I don't know, it's probably at the Burns Rodeo way back and probably a little whiskey involved. And they got into an argument on... Who put up the biggest and finest haystacks? And of course, it was, you know, loose hay then. And it was an art to put up a very big, nice, loose hay stack. And who threw the biggest loops? And they got in a pretty good argument. My granddad said, I'll give you the haystacks, but we throw the bigger loops. And that turned into an argument and, and said, okay, let's have a competition. The big loop contest was born. 
It was the first two years I think they did the big loop contest was in Harney County at the Burns Rodeo. And then they kind of quit it, but then it got picked up, which it now today is the Jordan Valley Big Loop. And what is the Big Loop competition? The Big Loop competition is who can, you have to throw, I believe, it's a 20-foot loop, a 20-foot of rope in that loop. And it is marked. With when, you, when you sign in to rope, to, to, before you go in, they put a piece of tape on where that 20-foot measurement is. And that has to be through your Hondu in that loop and you rope horses. Your header will go out there and head that horse and your heel will come in and rope the front feet. And, and so my granddad won the very first two. Nice. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got the, a list of who he roped with, the whole argument, everything. I got the whole history of the big loop. And somewhere. would he have been using a Raja Adriata? Uh, either that or seed grass. Probably seagrass, be my guess. He loved a seagrass rope. Really? Yeah, yeah. They handle. I didn't know you could stop a horse with a grass rope. Um, there is a deal on, on I believe, YouTube with a vaquero in Mexico, and he's got about 60 to 70 foot of, loop, of rope. And he, have you seen that? Yeah, just absolutely smoke reeling off smoke of that metal saddle. Off, and he's sitting on about 30 feet of rope of coil up under his leg. Yeah. That's seagrass. Yeah. And they oil them to make them smoke like gotcha. that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had a kid uh, tell me that. He, uh, I was judging, I was flagging on a on a comp- ranch competition and uh, he uh, came around the corner, bent the cow at the corner, brought her up the wall, through the loop and just runs about 15, 20 feet, you know, across that horn and smokes it. And, and uh, the rule was you could not let that cow cross this chalk line into mm-hmm. the herd. You had to control it. And he bent that cow just at that line and she goes across the line. And I didn't flag him out. Yeah. You know, and uh, about two two guys later come in there and he just blew up the herd. And he goes, oh my God, you didn't flag that guy out. And I says, anybody that can smoke his horn like that and control, have that much control, I'm not flagging him out. Yeah. But he says, you know, you, you blew the whole herd up. You're out. So anyway. Uh, yeah, see, probably seagrass be my guess, but he was a very good Rietta man. Him and, and Howard Otley of, uh, Harney County, they said were probably two of the best Rietta men out there. They could really throw that rawhide. When I was doing all this research for this moose hunt, mm-hmm. um, I was trying to figure out all the ways that moose had been historically hunted, especially in Northern Canada and Alaska. And the bow wasn't part of the picture for the most part. The The most common methods were either spearing them mm-hmm. from a canoe while they're swimming, just treat, right? treating them like a whale yeah. or snaring them. And the, uh, the snares that they made were made out of root, out of moose hide and they were either eight or 16 strand. And they're described as the diameter of a cod line, um, which you can think of as about half the diameter of a number two pencil. So they'd split, they'd split that, that moose hide down small enough that, you know, 16 strands of it would be half the size of a number two pencil and could stop a moose. So were they snaring basically just cow? So they'd have to deal with the antlers. So they, they were um, setting them pretty wide and they didn't care what time of year. Sure. Um, But you know, they were, 
some of those bulls are dropping in in December. Yeah, true. So they're spending sure. a lot of time sure. without much. And they're going to be congregated on those winter grounds. Yeah, you know where the browse is. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I never even thought about that. I'm trying to snare a moose or spear a moose, but to snare a moose with a with a, a rawhide that's that's pretty intense. Pretty gangster. Yeah. Um, so they use drags, and of course those moose are in willows, so drag would get caught in the willows, and if it didn't. Sure enough, kill the moose. Um, it could hold on, hold to, on him to him well enough that they sure. could get in there and kill it with a spear, yep. or or with a bow at that point. Yep. But just going out and hunting them with a bow really wasn't common practice. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So here you are. You're a little kid. You're doing doing man's man's job. Mm-hmm. We took over the buckaroon at you and your brother. Yep. Uh, granddad left the ranch in. Uh, 70, 70 or 72, I think 70, went into politics in 72, I believe. And in the state, in the state legislature, he was a state representative, was elected and uh, was, I believe, the longest serving state representative in the history of Oregon, 28 years, 26 years, something like that. What was his name? Denny Jones. Denny Jones. Yeah, Denny Jones. Was quite a representative for Eastern Oregon. Mm-hmm. Like Washington, like like Oregon, you know, we have basically no representation in this state because of the valley of Portland, Salem, Eugene, Washington, Seattle, you know, everything on the east side of the west side of the Cascades. And so he became very powerful. He was in Ways and Means and uh, he. Uh, Which the Ways and Means Committee sets the budget for the state they and, control. and determines everything how everything does or does not get funded yes and we all know how important money is in in politics so if you're on the ways and means committee at the state level then you have your thumb over the end of the hose and he really had his thumb on fishing game over the hose on them yeah um he uh he absolutely despised waste yeah there was uh at his funeral uh greg walden Uh, come in as a representative and his desk was right beside grandpa's and grandpa took him under his wing. He was out of that Wasco, the Dallas country, I believe, Hood River. And um, very good conservative. And uh, so at his, at grandpa's funeral, Greg Walden was there who became a U.S. uh, representative. Anyway, he said, uh, we were in this committee meeting and fish and game guys up there, head of fish and game. And he's asking for you know, 800000 for this project. He's going through all the spiel of it, and they're all sitting there at this table. And Grandpa says, well, 15 years ago, you asked for 372000 for this exact same thing. What the hell did you do with that money now that you're back here asking for 800000 The fish and game guy leans over to Greg Walden and goes, who the hell's the old guy? And Greg says, well, that's Representative Denny Jones, and you're about to get to be taken to the woodshed. Enjoy. And he become notorious for reading every bill and knowing exactly what was in every bill and the history that brought that bill in onto the floor. Which, you know, folks don't understand how hard it is to read every bill. Most of them don't. And and I don't blame them. I don't either. It's they these, have these bills can be hundreds of pages long. Yeah. They're very hard to read. 
purposely. And, and there are hundreds of bills. Yes. And if you're in a short session, how anybody could have the time to read every bill. And he did. He was, he was known for that. And he, I mean, my gosh, he was, he was in his 80s and still serving. Yeah. And he read every bill. He would hire somebody to drive him when they would have those special sessions. He would hire somebody to drive him so he could read the bills that were going to be coming before the floor on the way to Salem. You know, um, there was times when. Which is what? Seven and a half hours. Yeah. Period? Yeah. Seven and a half hours. You know, probably eight back then. Yeah. You know. Sure. Um, anyway, Grandpa went into legislature, you know, in the 70s. That's when I remember, that's why I was shoeing horses at 12 mm -hmm. years old. We did all the riding, um, you know, and, and we called it buckaroo. And talked to a guy in Texas one time, and he says, so why do you call it buckaroo? And I said, well, it's just it's what it is. And he says, in Texas, if you say he's a buckaroo, he's a, he's a dude. He's a, a fancy city slicker dude that wants to just be a horseback. And I go, you know, okay. But... That's what we called it. So, you know, we were we were doing the buck ruin at 12, 13. We did it all. Dad, I only remember my dad being on horseback twice. You know, I remember my brother went to high school and was boarded out. He'd come home from, you know, it's eighth grade. He'd come home and mom would say, you know, change your clothes, get your horse saddled. You know, you got to you gotta go do this and this and this. And I remember doing it alone, sometimes with dad, but usually I was alone, you know, working out cattle out of the feedlot or bringing cattle up. And, and uh, so my brother and I did it. Um, grandpa in, in the state legislature, they meet every other year. So there was a summer or fall that when grandpa was around and he always helped. But when he was in session, you know, he wasn't there. So we covered it all. I, I, you know, I've been a horseback at 30 below in a 50 mile an hour wind which is brutal. Riding a horse in the cold is one of the colder things you can do. That's the coldest thing I think I've ever done. Yeah. It, it literally. I wish there was gear back then is what we have today. You, know? you wouldn't have worn it. Oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> there's no know. way. As, I, as a little kid on a ranch <laughs> like that, there's no way. Don't touch the horn. I can remember. Yeah. I can remember the first time I was riding at a gallop and did not hold on to the horn. And I can remember my granddad's exact words that he complimented me on that. I was probably seven years old. Sure. You know, or six, I don't know. I can, I can remember that of letting go of the horn and galloping around these cattle that were spreading out across the sagebrush flat. And he noticed that and commented. I can still hear his words on that. That's how powerful that stuff is, yeah. you know? But I think it will worn the Gore-Tex in the, in the fleece Layers. Your really folks did. wouldn't have bought you Gore-Tex. <laughs> they would have told you to go away go and get figure it out. Go you know? get the wool. I mean, yeah. we used to. Our if you had wool, honestly, I don't think we. I don't. Th we had goose down. I don't think I ever yeah. had wool. You know, we had goose down. But I remember having boots because I, you know, I was trapping. I was probably four or five when my, when Grandpa bought me three muskrat traps. Conovers? No, no. Conovers a thing yet then? No, no, no. I didn't know about a conibear until I was probably 14. These were the like the little double-aught jumps. Okay. And I uh, bought Dan and I each three. And when he would go check the cows, he would pick us up at the house, and we would check our muskrat traps. He showed us how to set them. That's when we started trapping. And then my brother did, he liked it okay, but I went nuts over it. I love to trap and hunt. 
and uh, boots were always wore out. Boots always leaked. And you'd come home. Taped up. Taped up. You always wore uh, bread sacks so your socks didn't get wet. Yeah. You know, because they were, they just wouldn't hold, wouldn't yeah. keep water out. And uh, you'd get home from school and pull the bread sock or bread sacks on and shove your feet into there and, you know, and wade through the water and cross the river and cross the sloughs. And usually you went in too deep and then everything got soaked. And I can remember coming home with my hands so cold that I'd lost all the muskrats and quail I was packing. And I couldn't hold on to my gun. Everything was just, they were just, my hands were just claws and I was crying because they hurt so bad. Couldn't feel my feet, couldn't feel my hands. Got to the house, warmed up, got my hands to where I could use them again. Went back out with the flashlight and picked up all my muskrats and, and quail. Brought them back to the skinning room and cleaned the birds, put them away, cleaned the muskrats. But I loved it, you know, I loved it. What did you love about it? What is it about trapping and hunting that that can take over for a young man like that? I think it's in you. I, I think some love to fly and they can't get away from it. Some it's automobiles, mechanics, and hot rods, and some it's art and music. And for me, it was it was that hunting, trapping. To me, it was the solitude. Um, I'd sneak out of my bedroom window when I was 14, 15, on a January night with snow, you know, half a foot of snow on the ground and a full moon, and sneak down and hunt coyotes through the meadows. I'd sneak down through the ditches and hunt. You could see really well, you know, especially if the snow had a better crust on it, it would, it would reflect. That solitude of when it's zero out or five below out and you're moving and you're warm and you're just, you're just tiptoeing along and it's just you, that was everything to me. And the challenge of the hunt, you know, of being successful. Um, you know, if, I don't ever remember, it wasn't the joy of just of killing something. It wasn't anything like that. It was the challenge. It was oh, like an age old, something that burned inside of me of, of, of matching wits, matching knowledge, stamina, tricks, to, to take that animal. And then to me, fur, to put fur up on a board is like dressing a deer. You know, it's meat that goes in the freezer and that fur that goes on the board. And if you do it right and do it well, to me, it's an art to put really good fur up on a board to where when you take it to a fur sale, it's the top stuff on the tables out there. That's, that makes me proud, you know. Do you remember what a muskrat was worth when you were a little kid? Mm -hmm. I remember, yeah. I still got the stretchers that my grandpa Bill, my mom's dad, gave us and they're the old old muskrat stretchers and i'm talking early 1900s um i still have those stretchers but yeah quarter a quarter uh pelt i can remember getting 75 cents and we were in hog heaven man that was serious money you know and, and with that you bought 22 shells and you bought more traps sure. and you know and you bought more gear you bought trapping books you bought mm -hmm. lures you know and so um i think the most i remember as a little kid getting was 75 cents or a buck and it would fluctuate i mean man we there was goldberg out of uh goldberg furriers out of seattle and they were the big fur buyers and you would always get you couldn't wait till fall till you got that price list of what 
they thought the fur market was be would be. And you'd go down there and, you know, we started with muskrats and then you work your way up and hopefully you'd catch a coon every once in a while. And then, you know, you go after you go after bobcat, you know, and then, you know, the top end was to, to catch a coyote. If you could catch a coyote, that was kind of top end back then. If you could catch coyotes consistently, you could trap, you know. I still feel that way. I used to. If you can catch a wolf, that's yeah. top end. Yeah. You know. Um yeah, I uh, I spent a lot of years working for the government trapping this county. Um, the desert, Harney County, the Steens Mountains country, uh, down in Nevada. Caught a lot of old coyotes that were 12, 13 years old. Not a lot of teeth in their head. That was, I was pretty proud of that. Uh, I've caught three-legged coyotes. I caught one two-legged coyote. I got the picture yeah, of that. I shot a two-legged coyote. Did you? Yeah. yeah. People yeah. go bullshit. I go, yeah. I got the picture, man. Yeah. You know? He was fat. He, he'd had it figured out. You read about that bear got killed this year uh, in eastern Oregon that didn't have a tooth? No. It didn't even have room in its skull for teeth. It was <laughs> serious. Like, it, it didn't have the cavities. Like, it was a smooth mouth. No animal. kidding. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, crazy looking skull. Wow. Where at? Uh, somewhere in Umatilla County, I think. No kidding. Mm -hmm. hmm. I'll show you a picture of it later. Cool. You know, we would talk a little bit about what it meant to trap a moose, right? Yeah. Um, snaring a moose, that's trapping. Absolutely. And that's how, that's how people survived from at least 14,000 years ago until, uh, you know, fairly recently, probably in a lot of those places. And, and in some, some of those Northern languages, the word for moose and meat is the same word. Trapping is, is part of how people survived. It's how our species survived. Absolutely. Figured, figured it out. And that's a step beyond hunting. And they think that, that like hunting and like the skill of hunting is sort of the, this pinnacle that moved us far enough forward that we could transition into agriculture. But that just wasn't the case. You know, hunting, you have to be present in order to do it. Trapping is a persistent threat. That trap is always waiting. It's always there. And you can set a bunch of them. I think it was trappers and not hunters that actually moved our species far enough forward that we could take that next step into agriculture and then build civilizations and then build empires. I agree. It's amazing to read the history of just this country of the mountain men and the, the, the trapping expeditions that come into this country. I'd have given anything to see Jonesboro and Juntura Valley when those guys saw it and trapped beaver. They trapped like 1,800 beaver out of that valley mm. in, you know, in one winter. Cashed it, moved on. I think it was the Bridger Fur Company. And um, it just had to be dam upon dam upon dam. And... and that water flooded and willows everywhere to be that many beaver in that country. Gosh, and they so just they the, just kept pushing. Those guys had to have known what cold feet were all about. Oh my gosh. Out there in moccasins, waist deep water, trapping beaver. You gotta trap them when it's freezing yeah. because for them to be prime. Yeah. And so that doesn't come till at best it just starts mid November, but usually first of December. Sure. You know? So I uh I hate ice trapping beaver. <laughs> I hate it. You're going to fall in, you're going to get wet, and you're going to have your arms 
in there up to your shoulders. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah. No, it's like preg checking an iceberg. Exactly. All day long. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather, I've never had root canal, but you know, I think I'd rather have root canal than go out there and, 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 and do beaver. And so I, uh, in my job, I got to where I just, I figured out better ways. You know, there's better ways you know, yeah. than going out there and trying to catch him under, you know, six inches of ice. It's like, really? When I get back from this hunt, I'll start coyote trapping and it is under your least favorite coyote trapping conditions mm-hmm. because I'll have freeze thaw yep. twice a day, every yep. day. Yep. I don't, I don't do that. Miserable. If I don't have to, absolutely don't have to. And every time I put a trap in the ground, I think, yes, <laughs> it's perfect. Guaranteed <laughs> this one's going to work. And then I'll come back and it didn't, you know, there'll be a place where a coyote stepped on it or dug it up or peed on it. When you talked about trapping hunting, trapping, you have something there that is there 24-7 working. That working part of that yeah. is where the art. Yeah, sure. And I have, I'm really good at putting traps in the ground that I think are working and are not. And then <laughs> I, I get pissed and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reset this. And then I can't even get the thing to go off. Yeah. Because some, stand some, on it. something on has it. gone wrong. Yes. You know, and there's all kinds of ways for it to go wrong. But when it goes right, when you walk up there and there's a coyote waiting on you or... You hear that chain go clank, yeah. clank. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or if it's if it's a kill trap and, you know, you've got yourself a dead river otter or yep. whatever else. Yep. It's amazing. It is. It's and, uh, and, and the care that you put into taking care of that hide yeah. after that point... Yeah. Is, is a mirror of how much work it took you to get it caught. And it didn't just take the work of putting the trap in the ground. It took the work of years to figure out how to get it right so that that trap actually functioned. It takes it a lifetime. Right place. You know, it's, it's like somebody that wants, you know, let's say 30 years old and he wants to be a cowboy. He wants to learn how to rope. He can get decent, but he's never going to get as good as what that kid that started at three and was pushed. That's that was his life. It, it it is so ingrained in them on how to do it and how to do it right. It's their life. Um, it's the same with trapping. You know, I get guys coming to me all the time. Sometimes kids, sometimes guys. And they go, "What's it take to get a job like that?" And I go, "You ever trap?" And you know, they're 35, 40 years old. And they go, "No." I go, "Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get there." You know, you might work the administrative end of it, but you're not going to be somebody that can go out there and make a difference in in this line of work and be good at it. You don't, I'm sorry, but you missed the ball. You don't have, you don't have it built into you at this point. You just can't. Trying to to learn three languages when you're about 90 years old. Yeah. I I mean, I'd go so far as to say that it almost has to be generational too. Yes. Um, And I've wrestled with the idea of generational knowledge because there are generations that came before me and my family that never told me how to do anything. But there was still generational knowledge that got passed through them. And uh, it's it's really hard to explain. It's really hard to explain, but it's a prerequisite for for a few different skills. And I I think that, that I wouldn't have those skills if my granddad didn't have them. Yes. And I don't know if that's 
if that's genetic or just the desire to achieve at the level that they did, um, or, or what it all is, but you know, there's some stuff that just has to be in your blood, um, and, and be in your family. I think a lot of it has to do with, I never really thought of it about, thought of it like that, but it's just like this light went off. It's, it's generational. It's when you get up in the morning and you go out and you get to the barn and your granddad meets you and you do something wrong or right, it's conveyed. And throughout the whole day, you're either critiqued or you're trying to do it right or whatever. It's daily it, or, or weekly or whatever. If it's with your dad, it's what is discussed at the breakfast table. You know, before it gets daylight, it is what is discussed that night around the supper table on what was done right or what was done wrong or what was done that you enjoyed and, and everything and how much more fun can we have in doing this, you know. I got a buddy, a very, very good friend who his dad was a phenomenal shooter. And in World War II, he was a, um, he trained uh, marksmanship, I think down in San Diego. And um, he wanted to get in the war so bad, and, but he's, they said, no. Your skill is here, teaching these guys how to shoot. He taught his son how to shoot. And Frank went on to win some prestigious awards shooting for the National Guard uh, national team. And then he won awards also as a coach, and he taught his son to shoot. He said there were times when his boy, Tim, was laying on a shooting match asleep on the range in a big match Sound asleep. That kid grew up with that. Tim went on to do to be a very, very good um, sniper in the airborne, and um, that doesn't happen just like that. It's generational, and I think it it's the same way in in either hunting, trapping, music, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell me about this house. Huh. So we talked about the Union Pacific Railroad. Went through the ranch in 1910. Um, we hated it. You know, as a kid growing up, when you take a bunch of wiener calves, when you take 600 head of wiener calves and you got to push them across the railroad track, it's like Moses, you know, splitting the Red Sea. Those calves aren't going to cross that track. They're going to hit that and go left and right. If you're hauling hay and it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you you had a load of hay and you are coming up in the, t the road, you, were, you could barely miss the railroad ties, and you had to beat that train that was coming. And to get to the turnoff, to get out of its way. Um, so that railroad was there, and uh, I left the ranch in 96. Went to work for USDA Wildlife Services, and uh, worked out of Jordan Valley. And down on the Owyhee River, off a Crooked Creek, was a ranch down there. And I trapped for this old boy a lot. And there was a pile of stone. Three walls were partially standing. One wall was completely fallen in. And it was all a harder sandstone block that had been hand carved. And I asked him about it. I says, what's with the old building down there? And he says, oh, that's the, that's the old cavalry stable. That was the first outpost when the cavalry come in here in 1860s to fight the Indians, the Bannock Wars in, off of Silver City. You know, the gold rush and the whole bit. And those Indians always went to the Waihee Canyon to hide. And so that's where the, the cavalry chased them. And they could never catch up with them. And so they were always getting kind of shot at and ambushed and stuff. So they built this cavalry stable, which 
and time turned into a stage stop for the Winnemucca Boise military line. And so, you know, I thought it was cool. Um, I always liked stone, uh, especially when it's used. To me, one of the greatest things out there is the Greek Colosseum. That's, uh, you know, pyramids, yeah, but I'll take the Colosseum any day. To see it in its heyday, and wow, to me, that's uh, be a dream come true. But anyway, fast forward to where five, six years, this old boy is selling the ranch. He's done, he's wore out. New guy's gonna come in, and I asked him, I says, what's, uh, what's he gonna do with the old stone out there? And uh, Ronnie said, ah, oh, the son of a bitch is gonna, said he's gonna get a cat, dig a hole, and just shove it in. That's yeah, pretty cool stuff out there, Ronnie. Would you sell it to me? I go, have you, have you signed the papers? And he goes, no, nah, we haven't signed anything yet. He goes, what the hell are you going to do with it? And I go, I don't know, but it doesn't belong in a hole. And, uh, and on the rim up above it, there are the cavalry boys' signatures in that rim. And most of them are Irish. Some couldn't write. Some wrote backwards. Some wrote in just a beautiful hand of calligraphy. Most of the dates are 1863. And so I always thought that was cool. And so when I asked about the stone, I said, would you sell it to me? He goes, what are you going to do with that? I go, I don't know. Let's just save it. And he goes, what do you give me for it? Uh, what do you want for it, Ron? God, I don't know. Give me 500? I go, sold. He goes, damn it. Should have asked 1,000. I says, well, I wouldn't have paid 1,000. I spent two years tearing it down stone by stone. The mortar was mud, grass, and cattail. There was no foundation. That's why one wall had fallen in was because the sandstone set on the ground would suck up moisture and basically over 100 years plus melt. But I took it down block by block. I had 28 pallets. Each pallet weighed a ton. I would do that in the evenings. Took me two years. I... uh, Borrowed a forklift, hired a truck. He'd come in there. We loaded 28 pallets on there. When we set the last two on there, he said, I'm within 100 pounds of being overweight. When he came across the scale off of Morrison, he was 87 pounds under. We unloaded it. It sat here on my place for 10 years. And my wife, Teresa, bless her heart, finally says, you got to do something with it, with that pile of stone. You, you either got to get rid of it or do something. And I'm kind of a pack rat, obviously. So I had 28 pallets of stone sitting out there behind my house. And I started collecting wood. And I started collecting windows and doors with the thought of trying to build something with this stone. And so the beams, I built, I built trusses. They're called a king post truss. The beams are ripped in half and they are eight inch by nine inch beams. Today, they were an eight inch by 18 inch beam out of the railroad tunnel, just south of, just downriver from the ranch. The ranch, uh, the tunnel is called Long Tunnel because it was a quarter of a mile long. It was the longest tunnel on that whole spur line. This is straight grain fir that was cut in the Boise forest, milled at Boise somewhere, and then hauled up the rail as they built the rail. The bolts, actually in these trusses come from Tennessee. They are 1910 uh, railroad trestle bolts that I just happened to find. I wanted to keep everything as authentic as I could. Um, I sanded 
all the old look off of them down just enough to where you could see the wood grain somewhat. I oiled them and waxed them with the product and um, they've got all the old holes in them, the washer uh, places. It is absolutely gorgeous wood. Uh, all the windows are framed with the slats that went in behind the beams in that tunnel. And the way they built that is they would built this type of A-frame in the tunnel. And then as they put these slats in them, and these slats are three inch thick, 14 inch by four feet, rough cut boards, straight grain fur. And they would put those in slats and they would put those slats in, they would drive rock, wood, and anything they could behind that for pressure to fill that up. And um, a, a friend of mine salvaged that tunnel and I bought a bunch of that wood from him and salvaged what I could also. And um, all the doors, uh, all the windows are multi-pane. They, uh, they are over a hundred years old. The, the front door is a multi-pane French door. They come out of a church in uh, Portland, Oregon. The other door is a, is a full pane door that come out of a church in Salem. The door handles are the glass purple door handles. There's a saddle up in the beam that my great granddad, who was headed for the first Pendleton Roundup, that is the saddle that he rode with uh, in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in England. He was part of that. Um, there's a couple old buckaroo saddles that are up there that are from 1910, 1920 vintage that were, I found in an old, in the old dance hall on uh, my wife's ranch down on the Nevada border in denial. There's a set of snowshoes up there and they come out of an old boy's barn up in Idaho where I work now on the uh, South Fork of the Salmon River. Is there lacquer drawhide? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, he was quite a character. The stove is an enamel um, and nickel pot belly that uh, was in the, the hotel stage stop where my wife grew up. They quit using it in 1950. It, uh, it's a, almost a robin egg blue enamel, porcelain. And uh, there's an old Seaberg jukebox sitting over there in the corner that was used in the dance hall. They still got the records from the 1940s. Louis Armstrong and a bunch of others. It ran when they unplugged it. I, have, I haven't had the courage to plug it in. Those shotguns at the corner don't look like they were made yesterday. No, there's a there's a Damascus barrel. There's a, there's 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 a, a double barrel and a single barrel. I got two others over there. Um, those I don't have any history on. Um, Actually, the two right here, the, the double barrel and the single barrel. Um, a friend of mine I grew up with, uh, his family uh, ranched in this country. And uh, he, uh, he loved this place. And, and uh, when we were 18 and probably had too many beers, he had sold me a pistol, which he shouldn't have because it was a family heirloom. And... Uh, he always wanted that pistol back, and I just couldn't give it up until a year ago I realized that it meant way more to him than it would ever to me. And so I just called him up one day. I said, got something for you, and handed him the pistol. And 
he had tears run down his face and he says, I got something for you for the stone house. And so he handed me those two shotguns. Um, so I don't have any history with them except through him, through his family. Um, what are the dimensions of this building? The full length is 40 foot on the front end. It is narrowed down to 15 by 15. And then the back end is 20 by uh, 25. And I mean, I'm not a Mason. I had never laid stone in my life. Didn't know if I could do it. Didn't know how it would. A lot of these, all of these stones, they're, they're 21, 22 inches thick, you know, from inside the wall to outside. There's some stone here that weigh 300 pounds. There's the back corner one here has the name Miller carved into it. Can't prove it, but I'd always like, like to think that Miller and Lux. Who's that? Uh, Miller and Lux, Henry Miller. I believe it was Henry Miller, Miller Lux. Um, was probably one of the greatest cattlemen in the history out of California. Do you know, you don't know that story? No. Oh my gosh. I have a hard time believing that the greatest of anything came from California. Yeah. He, uh, you had the gold rush. He came in there and supplied meat through a butcher shop for, for, for the gold rush and for them building the railroad. And he couldn't get enough beef. And so he wanted, it was a lot like GR Simplot. If I can't get enough beef for my butcher shops, I'll raise my own beef. And if I'm going to raise my own beef, I'm going to need enough grass. Water rights in today's world are because of Henry Miller. He's the first one that ever applied for a water right. And he's the one that built the water system through the Napa Valley and the San Joaquin Valley yeah. and provided water for meadows for the cattle. And he started buying up land. And he, the last chunk of land that he bought was up here at Juntura, um, at what they call the PLC. He separated from, from Lux because they, they, they got into a dispute about something. So then it became the Pacific Livestock Company, the PLC. And that's what the Beulah country was. The headquarters for the Beulah country was in Harper Valley. Yep. And the Marchek Ranch was the headquarters. And mm. um, the Miller Lux, the PLC brand, was the wrench iron. And I got a buddy that's got an old brand and iron of that. Another friend and I built one, forged one. And um, the folks that own that iron today are the ones that own the ranch at Harper. Mm. That, ran, that brand um, happened to come up that it had not been renewed. And they, uh, they were able to acquire that brand. So a brand of Henry Miller through 100, 100 years ago or more comes up and they were able to acquire it on the folks that own the, the headquarters now. Anyway. So how many houses would you say you would have to make from old railroad tunnel timbers and uh, 160-year-old sandstone one at a time before you called yourself a mason? <laughs> uh, just the one for me. Just, you know what, just dude, the one on just, the same page. Uh, I really had to whip myself into a frenzy to finish the inside because... Uh -huh. The outside I finished, but the inside was really rough. You know, I didn't, it, it was not filled in. Yeah. And dude, I was tired of mortaring. I, I mixed it all by hand. All this mortar is, I, I uh, there is a pit down at Jordan Valley. There's a rancher down there that he's got a rock barn and he likes to 
dabble in this kind of stuff. And he told me, he said, use Caesar's recipe. And I go, okay, I'll bite. What's that? And he said, that's what Rome was built on. I go, all right, Mike, Mike Hanley. I go, all right, Mike, you going to tell me? And he goes, three shovels of sand, two of cement, and one of lime. And he says, you got it. And they had a sand pit down there, and I hauled pickup loads after pickup loads of sand. And I had pallets of concrete and, and lime. And I mixed it all myself. And I got good at knowing exactly what I needed to mix, the consistency that would flow through a grout bag into this. And so like with this, I would make my mortar, and I would take my grout bag, and I would squirt it through all of these, just like a, if you don't know what a grout bag is, it's like a a, uh, a decorative Yeah, like you're squir- cake. squirting frosting on yeah, a cake. exactly. Yeah. It's just a lot bigger. And so you squirt it in there, but if you go too far, it's going to dry on you too fast. And so because the sandstone is extremely dry, and it's going to suck that moisture out. So you learn real fast on how much you can do, how wet your mortar needs to be, how slick it needs to be to flow, and then you do what you can, and then you tamp it in and then you brush it in and then you wire brush it and then you nylon brush it and then you paint brush it to get all the edges clean because you want the stone to pop you want it to stand out all the edges and honestly you can set in here or outside as the sun goes down whether it's summer or winter and this thing will change every minute on you with all the lines you will see chisel marks you will see holes, you will see contours, you will see colors. It's just a really neat place. It's a great place to drink a glass of scotch. It's a great place to drink a glass of scotch. Teresa and I come out here with some smoked salmon and some good cheese and a bottle of red wine, build a fire in a snowstorm outside, leave the phones in, in the house, you know, and it's just us. We, a lot of times in the winter we do it every Friday to just shuck off the week, get rid of the crap, and just enjoy. This is, uh, uh, I could put a cast iron bed up here and I could I could live here, you know. I love this place. I love it too. It took me seven years. The biggest problem was I didn't design it, say this is what I'm gonna do, because I didn't know how far the stone, how do you take a pile of stone and go, this is what I can build with it, you know. You can't take it to a architect and say, you know, will this work? You know, that's, 140-year-old stone, 106-year-old stone, you know, 110-year-old timbers, they're not going to go, oh, yeah, knock yourself out. You, you, know, you got this. No. You can tell, like on this upper layer, it's a lighter stone. And so there was a quarry down there that was cut in the 30s, 1930s. And so you can see it's a lighter, different kind of a texture than the hand-cut chiseled stone, which is more of a yellow, rougher stuff. And so... That's where I ran out of the old stuff, and I had to go and get the other stuff to finish. But I did pretty good. I, I, I worked at putting as many windows as I could in because I knew I was, I was limited on stone mm-hmm. and uh, as many doors as I could. I got the big barn doors here on the back. I forged the hinges myself, um, hung them. Obviously. Because it's not like you can just go down, you don't go down it, to value. the store and like buy hinges. No, no, you don't. Uh, and I had to buy the forge. <laughs> To build the hinges, you know? Uh, yeah. And I wanted to do it myself. I, I know guys that, that do forge work. And I, you know, I could have went and says, hey, build me some hinges. But no, I wanted to do it myself. And I tried to do it with the settling. It's like, nah, sorry. 
You can't, you can't heat that kind of no. iron up with settling. Ain't going to yeah. work. Yeah. No, as soon as you get part of it the right color, the other part of it's going <laughs> yeah. you try and beat it into place, and you just, you know, yeah. uh, looks like Gumby got ran over all day. Yeah. No, it just rejects a hammer. Well, it's a beautiful place. It's a monument of labor. And it's a really cool piece of history. Yeah, it is. Um, imagine the struggle. I've, I think about stuff like this all the time, probably more than I should. But imagine the struggle of like, let's say, you know, humans make it another thousand years, a couple thousand years. Let's be real optimistic on that one. And, uh, and then another 10,000 years goes past and some alien archaeologists show up and they start trying to figure out some of the stuff that we we're up to. And one of them is going to roll in here because this house is still going to be standing. And he's going to have to figure out how this tied into. Yeah, that, that this was once Something. a cavalry station. <laughs> and then somebody moved it and rebuilt it with parts and pieces from somewhere else. Another one that really gets me with the alien archaeologists is archery season and muzzleloader season. Imagine them trying to figure out that we had a time of year in a specific place where you were only allowed to use a weapon that technology had long since surpassed. That civil, civilizations either made it or make or break on if you could just flat eat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So let's hold a holiday. Yeah. You know, that that's all you get to do. Yeah. Yeah. If we, if, if we went back to you know, any Native American tribe and saw that like they had an atlatl only season, <laughs> couldn't use bows. It's atlatls only from September 15th until September 22nd between this river and this trail. We'd be like, what? All you can do it's crazy. is use a 60 foot Rietta you know, <laughs> for 30 days. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you got to use a 20 foot loop. Change the tire? No, you're going to shoot five horses today. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, the horse isn't 20 foot big, but you got to use a 20 foot loop. <laughs> okay. All right. No. You know, I, I grew up in, you know, in every, every area is different. I, and I think the best advice a dad or granddad could give a son or daughter that wanted to take over that ranch is, okay, I need you to go work for five, six years. And every year you're going to work in a different place. You're going to be in New Mexico, yeah. Arizona, Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, or the South Dakota. See how all those peoples are different. See what, see what grass looks like. See what, see what no grass looks like. Grandpa had us convinced that we had the best ranch in the world. I've only seen one that was even worse. You know, everything else was so much better. Just too much rock. Well, best... He wasn't wrong. I mean, best is 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 so relative. Yeah. Um, and he was probably being a hundred percent honest in saying that, at least with himself. It made his life. Yeah. Yeah, and he grew up hard. Yeah. I mean, he. Uh... And the harder you work for something, the more you convince yourself it's worth. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to do it. Hereford Cattle made him that ranch. He didn't talk to me for six months when I br brought the first black bulls in. Six months, he didn't talk to me, you know. Hmm. But that's okay. Well, and, and I understood. Chew, I mean, chewing on a Hereford steak will make you tough. 
But without Herefords, we wouldn't have Black Bollies. Exactly. Yeah. You know, exactly. I mean, they <laughs> turned out to be good for something. Well, so folks, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be multiple parts of this episode, multiple episodes coming from Mr. Jones here. And uh, you're not going to hear the rest of them for months, maybe years. Um, there's some, some circumstances that are, that are preventing us from telling some of these stories, but that's not preventing us from recording them. And uh, for now, this is what you get. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. October, November, December, they're just the best months out of the year, right? Whether it's for work or hunting or fishing, the holidays, spending time with your family, just it's awesome, right? And we've got some nice cold mornings now, and you get to go out and have a, a warm drink in the duck blind or out on the hillside where you're glassing for, for mule deer or elk or, uh, or sitting in a tree stand waiting for a whitetail to come past. Or you're working on the job site and you get to take a break and have some nice warm coffee waiting for you. It's pretty nice. Having a cold drink at the end of the day, that makes everything a little bit better too. My favorite Stanley item right now is the 14-ounce titanium travel mug super lightweight because it's made out of titanium so i'm willing to take it with me when i'm hunting throw it in my pack fits in every cup holder out there and it just seems to be the right amount of coffee uh, i i like it it's a really cool item and it fits a niche that i didn't have uh, filled in like any of my other drinkware categories i guess uh, if you're looking for a christmas present for somebody or just a gift that you want to help them out with I recommend this because it's pretty cool and it's something that they don't have already. The way most discount codes work, completely honest, is uh, if you use it, then whoever gave you that code gets a kickback. Now, I'm not a salesman and I want nothing to do with that. So I'm going to pass along to you a discount code that Stanley gave me because they're great supporters of this podcast and they're great supporters of this audience, which I love. So if you use the discount code SIXRANCH, the number six, the word ranch, you'll get 25% off anything you order from stanley1913.com. I get nothing back from that. I don't want anything. I just want to pass along some savings to you and save you a little bit of money and get you connected with this great company that makes really great products. And as we move through fall and, and get into winter and the holidays, just hope everybody's doing well and, and having a good time and, and that you get to Get out there and connect with nature and, and connect with your friends and family and have a nice warm drink while you're doing it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, Follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>